You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. This morning I started a teaching on the gospel, the kingdom. And I want to just go into that tonight for a little bit longer. Um, you guys... So we're going to actually uh, look at one particular passage. It's found actually in Matthew chapter 25. This morning I looked at Matthew 24. And uh, Matthew 24, 14, of course, says that it's the gospel of the kingdom that will be preached to the, throughout the world to all the nations, and then the end will come. And, of course, the question that the disciples asked Jesus was, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So I want us to continue really on the same theme tonight of understanding the kingdom of God and what God is uh, wanting us to recognize. The word gospel literally means good news, correct? How many know that? But if you study it a little deeper, this is what it means. It means a person, an evangelist, and the term good news and the term evangelist in English, they don't sound at all alike, do they? But in the New Testament, in the uh, original language, they're very similar words. And they literally mean an evangelist is someone who heralds a report that will causes or literally evokes excitement or great joy. And often it would be used of, for example, um, a herald who would go forth and just say, the king wants you to know that his enemies have been defeated. And... The people would, you know, they'd gather and they'd just, you know, ass, and they'd say, oh, that's all, you know, that's great. Praise God. And, and it literally, that's what the word good news means. It's a report that causes people to respond with great joy because the enemy has been defeated. That's what the gospel means. All right? All right. So, when we talk about the gospel, one of the things that we need to understand is this thing in Matthew 24, 14 again. It's the gospel of the kingdom that he said must be preached as a witness or a testimony, depending on what translation you use. Now, a witness or a testimony, in fact, it says elsewhere in Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, that no testimony is valid unless there's at least two witnesses, right? No testimony is valid unless there's at least two witnesses. And when you really study what Jesus was saying, he's saying the gospel is to be preached as a testimony. And it's not legally binding. We're, we're, they're really, we're not to believe, you know, the, the veracity of this message unless there's some type of corroborating evidence. And so what he's saying is that the gospel has to have at least two witnesses for it to be true. Now, what are those two witnesses? Well, we saw this morning, Luke chapter 8. Can we just throw it up for again in the New King James, Luke chapter 8, verse 1? I want you just to look at this again. Jesus was the one who was preaching the gospel of the kingdom or the glad tidings of the kingdom, all right? And it says, particularly here, that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And his 12 were with him. So Jesus is preaching, he's proclaiming, he's declaring, but he's also bringing or demonstrating the glad tidings. So the two witnesses, if you study what Jesus taught in John, and we really don't have time to get into all this tonight, but uh, we'll unpack it in, in the ensuing weeks recognize that what Jesus is saying is that the gospel is you're not to even you know what Jesus said in John 10 he said don't believe me unless I do the miracles of my father he said don't believe me that's crazy like today you know how my heart like oh no 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 we don't we won't we teach the exact opposite oh just have faith right just just have faith just trust and the fact is, Jesus said, no, 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 the true gospel is not just in declaration, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. So he was not only 
was he not only proclaiming or preaching, but he was bringing the glad tidings. The old King James says shooing, preaching and shooing. Shooing is an old Elizabethan term, Elizabethan English, which means what? Showing. So showing. So he was showing the kingdom. How do you show the kingdom? Well, this is where we get the term. If you've not heard this, I, I like it. I'm not saying I originated it. Maybe I did. But the show and tell gospel. It's the show and tell gospel. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be. It's good news that is not only something spoken, but something demonstrated. It's real. It's tangible. It'll change your life. And if you read the next couple of verses, actually, here in Luke chapter 8, you'll see that he specifically mentions, can we throw those up too, please? Verses 2 and 3, about the miracles that Jesus did. That's what it was. He did these amazing miracles. So what happens is Jesus goes out and he's preaching the gospel. And what happens is people are delivered and set free. There's certain women out of evil spirits who had evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene out of whom came seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod, Stuart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Now, that's an amazing verse of scripture because it shows us clearly that Jesus had supporters. And some of those people were very wealthy. Now, Mary Magdalene was probably not the type of person that you would want to associate with because she was considered perhaps, you know, a very bad woman. And, you know, we don't know exactly what she was, whether she was a prostitute or not, but she had seven evil spirits, seven demons, and she was completely set free by Jesus. And the interesting thing is she was the first person he appeared to after his resurrection. Isn't that amazing? So the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. The kingdom of God is not in logos, but it's in dunamis is what it's saying. So it's not just a message, it's not just a sermon, but it's the power of God being demonstrated. And I want us to understand, please, tonight, that we have in many places in our world today, all we have is a form of godliness and no power. We have preaching that might be biblically correct and theologically accurate, but we don't see the corresponding demonstration of the power of God. And this is not the true gospel. It's an incomplete gospel at best. The true gospel, there's power. Power to change our lives. Power to turn us into the person that God wants us to be. Power to heal the sick. Power to drive out unclean spirits. Power to even raise the dead. That's what the gospel is. All right. Here's what I want you to understand, please. Matthew 24, 14 says, it's the gospel, this good news of the kingdom that will be preached as a witness to all the nations of the world. Now, understand this. When was the kingdom of God first mentioned? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, we can argue, well, there's reference to the kingdom of God. You know, there's the kingdom of David and so on. Absolutely. But... When did God really introduce this concept of the gospel of the kingdom? Well, in John the Baptist started to preach it, right? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached that as well. And then he told his disciples in Matthew 10, 7 and 8. He said, as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, freely receive, freely give. That's what he told us. Now, but here's the interesting thing. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, was actually something that was prepared before the foundation of the world. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 for a minute. Matthew 25, verse 34. Here's what's happening. Jesus is preaching about the sheep and the goats. And the sheep, those who did the will of God, he says to them in Matthew 25, verse 34, this is, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did you hear that? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Now, here's what you, we need to understand, guys. The kingdom of God was something that was prepared before the foundation of the world for us, for all of humankind. Now, obviously, God originated this in his mind. It was in his heart. And so when you go back to the beginning, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, let's look at verses 26 through 28, we see the first real proto, well, not, it's not even a prototype. It is actually the representation of the kingdom. We see the kingdom starting. So what happens is God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God created mankind, here's the deal. He did two things. He said, first of all, I'm going to create you in my image and likeness. What that means is that you were created, I was created to be like him. Now, then he says this. So I'm going to give you, this is your identity. It's tied to your relationship with me. I'm your creator. Then he says this. What I'm going to do is I will literally, I'm giving you dominion over everything that was created. Psalm chapter 8 verse 6 says that literally he put all things under our feet. He gave us everything and he said, over all the things on the earth, I've given you authority. So we're created to exercise authority over everything. Now at that time, please remember that Adam and Eve hadn't sinned yet, correct? They hadn't transgressed. So there wasn't sickness. There wasn't sin. There wasn't, um, you know, any of the evil things like we have today, like wars and so on. But what ends up happening is we see very clearly that before that, there was still an adversary that they had to deal with. Who was that adversary? Before they sinned. He rocked up in the form of a serpent. Right? Who was it? Right. So he comes and he says, all right. He challenges them. Did God say? Did God tell you it's all right to do this? No, no. And so what ends up happening is he entices them and they end up transgressing God's commandment. At that moment, what takes place is the kingdom was forfeited. They lost the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? We said this morning the kingdom literally is the domain, the realm, the place where God exercises his dominion. So a king has a domain, right? He has territory. And in that territory, he legally and is, is authorized to rule. So in that place is where we experience his rule and his reign. So in order for us to experience God's rule and reign, because he is a king, we have to be in his kingdom. Does that make sense? So what does he say? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So we enter the kingdom of God by being born again. And through trusting in what Jesus did on the cross and repenting of our sins, because he says, repent, and what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repentance is a vital part of entering into the kingdom. And it means to change the way you think. And I, and I just want to reiterate that it's not just like, okay, so all these bad things that I was doing, all these worldly evil things, selfish things that I'm doing, I need to repent of that? Yes. But what else? Your good things. You have to repent of the good things too because your goodness will never bring you into a relationship with God. So the bad things you repent of and the good things. And you change your mind because that's what the word repent means. It means to change your mind and you move into a place where you now embrace what God says in his word, his truth. And see, the battle is really all in the mind because what has happened is he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the world has a pattern. The world has a mold that it wants to squeeze us into. And the way the world does that, which is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, is this. What happens is, I'm sorry, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. What happens is God literally says, this is the way you understand my kingdom. You renew your mind. But the world says, no, no, no. This is the way you're supposed to think. And so there's this 
this conformity it literally means an outward conformity but God says I want to do an inward transformation and the inward transformation it starts from the inside and God changes us from the inside out but the world tried to change us from the outside in that's the way it is that's the pattern of the world it's outside in outwardly comply conform do certain things and it corrupts you inwardly but the world is that when you obey God, when you do what he says through you, the spirit of your mind being renewed, then what happens at that point is it begins to change you in every way. It begins to change your thinking, begins to change your behavior, and it literally sets you free so that you can walk in victory. So there's a lot of things that we have to come to the place. So what happens is when Adam and Eve sin, they lose the authority that God had given to them, that dominion to rule over all things. And so we read in the scriptures that Satan becomes the God of this world, right? John chapter 12, verse 31, he's called, the, he's called the prince or the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the God of this age. And Satan at that point literally entraps the world, keeps the world in bondage, they lose the legal rights to walk in that place of authority. And we also understand that they were stripped first and foremost of their intimate relationship with God. And the amazing thing, guys, is this. I'm going to share something with you. This, this, hang on, okay? Put your seatbelts on. Because I'm telling you that this will change your life if you get this. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were one with God. Do you understand that? They were one with God. <laughs> Do you know that means they, they, they thought the thoughts of God? They knew what God was thinking. They were one with him. And what ends up taking place is because of sin, they end up, they forfeit that relationship. It's breached, it's severed. And now they're no longer at oneness with God. And because they're no longer in oneness with God, they lose their authority and they lose the glory of God. Let me demonstrate. How do we know they lost the glory? Because before they sinned, they didn't wear much, right? But they were not ashamed. Immediately, straight away after they sinned, what happens? They realize they're naked and they try to cover themselves. Why? Psalm chapter 8, let's go there for a minute. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 tells us why. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. I'm just teaching into something tonight, and then we're going we're gonna to move into the glory. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. You made man, now this is what one translation says, a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with what? Glory and honor. Now, God made man a little lower than the angels. Some of you have heard me say this, but the fact of the matter is that word that's translated angels, and you'll see this in some other English translations, can as equally be translated God because it's the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the exact same word that when it says in Genesis 1:26, and God said, let us make man, it's the same word. What's translated angels and God, Elohim. So God made us a little lower than God. I challenge you, look it up in other translations. It'll be translated God. God made you and me, made Adam and Eve before the sin, they sinned a little lower than God. And crowned them with glory and honor. They were crowned with glory. The word that is translated crowned means to encircle, to cover, to envelop. And what it's saying is that when they were in the garden, they were encircled, they were covered, they were literally cloaked with the glory of God. So when they sinned, what happens when you sin? What happens to the glory? Who knows Romans 3.23? Come on. For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory. So sin causes us to fall short of the glory of God. And literally in the Greek it says, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on falling short of the glory of God. It's just a constant downward spiral away from the glory of God. That's what sin does. Separates us from the presence of God. 
But what happens is Jesus came to give back to you and me what was lost in the garden. How do I know that? Because there are many places where the scripture says that, and we'll go through just a few. In Luke 19, verse 10, it says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, please note, it doesn't say he came to seek and to save those that are lost. It says that, impersonal, which was lost, something that happened in the past. People are lost, correct? You wouldn't call a person that. You would call a person by their name or he or her or whatever, or him or she or whatever, but you, you wouldn't say that. So it's speaking of something impersonal. And it says this happened in the past, that which was lost. What he came to seek and to save, that which was lost. He came to restore to us what was lost. What was lost? intimacy with the Father, oneness with the Father in the garden, and out of that oneness, out of that union, was the glory and the authority. The glory is in, I'm sorry, the authority is in the glory. Do you know that? So people are seeking after power, and the truth is how you walk in the anointing, how you walk in supernatural power, I'll, I'll show you very quickly. Are you ready? Oneness is severed. Power, glory, is they're stripped of their glory, their glory covering, their glory garments, and they lose their power and authority. So what happens is, if you want to see the restoration of power and authority, you have to focus on intimacy. So you go into that place of oneness being restored, union with God being restored. Out of that is you become a partaker or a sharer in the glory. And out of that, you have the power and the authority. Psalm 97, 5 says, The hills or mountains melt like wax at the presence or at the glory of God. So it's not the words we speak. But it's the anointing and the power that we walk in. And when we declare something, it literally, like Jesus says, you do speak to the mountain, it'll be cast into the sea. But it's not our words per se. It's the anointing that's released. It's the power that's released from people that are in a place of oneness and unity and union with God. All right. Let's look at the verse that just, just clinches it, okay? Let's go to John chapter 17. Verse 22, Jesus is most likely in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And that's what some scholars believe John chapter 17 is recording some of the content of his prayer when he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. One of the things he says to his father, and the glory which you gave me, I've given what? Them. Why? That day what? One, just as we are one. Now, listen, if, let's go to the next verse, please. Please don't think that he's talking about us becoming one with each other. It's not the horizontal relationship that he's referring to there because in the next verse he says, I and them and you and me that they may be perfect in one that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. So he's talking about one just as he, Jesus, was one with the Father. So he's saying that that is to be something that is restored. And so how do we restore that oneness, that union with God? He says, I gave them the glory that you gave me. All right. One more example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Paul is speaking about salvation and what happens when you're saved. Look at this. This is powerful. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you. You're chosen. Isn't that awesome? For salvation... He chose you for a purpose. What? To experience the whole package. Salvation, which means freedom from the harassment of an enemy, which means to be made whole, to be made complete, to be rescued, to be saved, to be healed, to be delivered. That's what the word salvation means. So God chose you, 
okay, from the beginning to inherit this salvation. And how does it happen? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. All right? So the Holy Spirit makes us holy as we believe the truth. And then what happens? Look, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He called you and me to obtain the glory. Now, Jesus came to restore intimacy, oneness, and out of that oneness, what happens is we have the glory and the authority. Now, the devil's smarter than what we give him credit sometimes. I know sometimes we, we give him too much credit. But let's look at Luke chapter 4 for a moment, verses 5 through 7. Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And one of the temptations, Luke chapter 4, 5 through 7, is the devil takes him up on a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil says to Jesus, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all would be yours. Now, do you see what he's doing here? He's offering Jesus a counterfeit. He's offering him a knockoff. Because how do we experience oneness with God? Worship. As we worship him, right, there's a sense in which we become one with him. We become one in spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that. So we come into that place where we worship and we praise him, those who've truly been born again, and then we become one with him. There's something very special that takes place. And what happens is Satan says, hey, Jesus, I know why you came. You came to restore the glory and the authority, and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he says, if you bow down and worship me, the, creator, the creature, not the creator, he said, I'll give it to you. Now, what is clearly wrong with that picture is we're only to worship the Lord our God. And that's what Jesus said. Get behind me, Satan has written. Worship the Lord your God and him only. So I'm not going to worship you. And you know, it's crazy to say it, but people can become one with demon spirits. And it comes into that place when how do you become one with an unclean spirit? You worship the creature and not the creator. Peep, that's what it says in Romans chapter 1. You worship the creature and not the creator. So you worship yourself. You worship pleasure. You worship other things in life. You worship idols. You worship all these different things. And it's a substitute for the true worship. And you, you will never become one with God. You can become one with some things you don't want to become with if you don't realize and recognize it. It's very subtle. It's very devious, very powerful, and it can wreck your life. And so what ends up happening is Jesus says to him, no, 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 Satan. I've come to get, reclaim the glory. I've come to reclaim the authority, but I'm not looking for the glory and the authority of this fallen world. That's not what I'm after. I am going to restore the glory and the authority of my Father's kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So Satan, there's no shortcuts here. It's not going to barter with you. I'm not going to make any deals with you. I'm going to go to the cross. Now understand this, that Jesus was going to restore it one way or the other, and Satan was trying to preempt that and take him out. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The only way I can restore what was lost is through the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And without the forgiveness of sin, there can be no reconciliation or intimacy with God once again. So I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to lay down my life for the sins of this world in order to take mankind who's lost, who's, who's you know, oppressed, who's in a place 
of not understanding who God is, and I'm going to restore him back to me. All they have to do is believe this message of the gospel, believe what I did, and I'll bring change and transformation to their life. And when I truly restore them and bring them back to relationship and oneness with the Father, they will begin to walk in the fullness of my kingdom. And in the kingdom is the fullness of God's power and provision. You cannot experience miracles without being in the kingdom. That's why it says in, and I mentioned the scripture this morning in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I do this, and it's evidence that the kingdom has come. So we step into that place where we realize that Jesus saved us, not just like, okay, I'm happy now, because one day when I die, I'm not going to go to that lake with all the fire. I'm going to actually go to the other place, and no, 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 no. No, 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 that is so, so limiting in terms of what Jesus has actually made available to us by salvation. He's made available to us the restoration of intimacy with God, that we can know God, we can know his heart, we can know his thoughts, we can be one with him, and we can walk in that place of glory and see his power and his provision operate supernaturally in our lives. But it only takes place as we yield to him and as we pursue that intimacy with him as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. Come on. That's good preaching. That is so awesome. And so now, guess what happens? There's some people in the New Testament that have the audacity to take Jesus at his word. One of them, his name is Peter. And in Acts chapter 5, we read about Peter. And this is what it says in verses 14 through 16. Can we throw that up? Acts 5, 14 through 16. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So there's a move of God happening here, right, guys? A lot of people are getting saved. Believers are being increasingly added to the Lord. And so they bring the sick out in the streets and lay them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. All right? Then what happens? The next verse. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. So we're not just talking about the city proper. Now this is in the suburbs. People are coming from the suburbs. And they're, they're coming into Jerusalem and they're bringing sick people and those who are tormented by unclean spirits. And they were what? All healed. And they were all healed. Now, just because we're not seeing it in our time, in our lives, doesn't mean it can't happen. Because it did happen. And Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. So it can happen. But in order to see the results that they experienced, we have to be willing to pay the price that they paid. And that means we have to be willing to pursue a life of intimacy with God. And that's why Paul said, I count it all rubbish in order that I might know him. So it's all about knowing him. It's all about having that intimate relationship with him. And anything that would distract me, anything that would impede me, anything that would draw me off course, I count it as rubbish, as worth nothing. Less than nothing. In order that I might know him. So this call is to walk in this place of authority. Let me just close with this verse. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. I'm not sure if we have the Amplified Bible here. If we, let me, I'm going to read it from the Amplified. Ephesians 1, 23. Paul is speaking of the church. And here's what he says of the church, meaning the people of God, not a building, but the people of God. Here's what he says. The church is his body, the fullness of him. The fullness of him. Did you hear that? Now that right there. Wow. The church is the fullness of him. Listen to that. Who fills all in all. 
For in that body lives the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself. In the body, we are the body, we are the church, and in that body lives the fullness of Christ who fills everything everywhere. Similar verse is found in Ephesians 3.19. Amazing. Ephesians 3.19. The church is his body made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Now, let's look at Ephesians 3.19 for just a second. It's an amazing verse. It talks about who we are as the people of God collectively. That's why the enemy tries to divide Christians. You know that. See, what happens is we have people, and this is very important that you understand this because theologically, trust me, the devil knows exactly what he's doing, guys. He's not just out to, like, cause, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, angst for some people, all right? He's got, a, he's got a skillfully crafted agenda to separate believers from believers and to cause, and often the way he does is that he causes believers to pursue their own agendas so that they feel they don't need to be attached to the body of Christ. They don't need to be connected. They can just do their own thing. I have my own calling. I have my own ministry, this and this. And then they separate themselves from the body of Christ. And what they do is it's like cutting an arm off of your body. Now, I realize, somebody said, well, yeah, yeah, well, that's a little bit extreme, isn't it? No, 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 no. Who's the body? Who's the head? Right? Christ is the head, but who's the body? So if we're not connected together, we're not a body. Huh? We're just an individual piece of anatomy, whatever we might be. But it's only as we're connected together that we become functional. It's just like my finger. If I cut off my finger, what are, what are they going to try to do if I cut off my finger? They're going to try to sew it back on, right? They're going to try to heal that because they want to know that my finger is not going to be able to live, won't be able to function or do anything if it's, if, it's not, if it's severed from my body. So what happens is the love of Christ which passes knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he's speaking to the body there. He's not speaking to individuals if you read it in the context. And he's saying that the body as a whole is filled with all the fullness of God. So what that means is this. Can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? Some people are filled with the Holy Spirit more than others people. Do you know that? Why? Because they seek after God. They're hungrier. He says, I'll pour water on thirsty grounds. Right? So what happens is they seek after God. They walk in a place of greater surrender, greater dependence on God. And as a result, they experience a greater measure and infilling of the Spirit's power. But even such a person, take someone like Smith Wigglesworth, Catherine Kuhlman, Amy Semple McPherson, John G. Lake. Take some of these people and even as amazing as they were, they did not have the fullness of, the, of God operating in their lives. Because the fullness of God operating in the world will only take place with a body that's connected together. That's why it's so important that you forsake not the assembling together of yourselves. Because if you get away from, from worship then there's a place for private prayer and, and reading the scriptures, absolutely. But when you get away from the body of Christ as a whole you get away from the lifeline and so the enemy would rather have you sit at home and watch television, sit at home and, and be introspective about all your problems and all the things that you're going through in life and and then you end up, you focus on those things and you end up taking your eyes off God and you don't step into that place where the collective anointing and presence of God is. And then what happens is gradually you just begin to dry up the longer you stay away. People say, well, why are you so, you know, serious about this whole fellowship thing? Well, first of all, it's in the Bible. And they devoted themselves continuously to fellowship, right? Acts 2.42. So they devoted themselves. They did that, or maybe Acts 2.39, 40, 41, maybe not 42, maybe. But they did this, and what happens? 
it says great power is manifested. Miracles take place. Because there are people that are living together in the oneness with God. Now here's how it works. If you look at it this way, here's God up here, right? Think about a triangle. Here's God up here. You're here, I'm here. As we both move up toward God, guess what happens? We get closer to one another as well, correct? So that's why it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Now, getting together and having a meal isn't fellowship. Fellowship is spiritual, all right? The word koinonia means to have in common, to have all things to, in oneness, in sharing together. And we're actually, the Bible says, and our fellowship is with the Son. Our fellowship is in his very life. That's what we're sharing in. We become partakers of the divine nature, is what it says. We become one, and we fellowship in his life. And then as we do that, then what happens is we draw closer to God and then this amazing thing happens where we have this spiritual connection that takes place in the body of Christ. And what happens in all of that is you learn to love people, you learn to care for people, you learn to serve people because now it's not about you. Now what has happened is God is transforming you. He's changing you from the inside out. He's giving you his heart. He's giving you his desires and you just begin to love people. And that's exactly when we start to see the formation of the life of Christ happening on the earth in a body that is going to rightly represent him to a world that is lost, that has no knowledge of who he is. So it's not just about, well, I, I'm just going to go out there and build my ministry and do my thing. No, God isn't looking to just raise up a bunch of you know, Reinhard Bonkies or Benny Hens or whomever. That he's not trying to do that. He's trying to bring a people together. And that place of oneness, communion, and fellowship with him and one another. And people can be nasty, correct? Christians can be nasty, right? Sheep bite. I've got lots of bite marks, trust me. Okay? Numerous times, sometimes in the same place. Many times, okay? But the fact is, this is still God's way. You know, when a sheep gets like that, it's not a big deal. You just take the stick and beat it a couple times and it'll go away, right? But you don't give up on the sheep, right? Do you know when a sheep would wander away and constantly be rebellious, what the shepherd would do if the sheep wouldn't listen? He would break its leg. A shepherd would break the sheep's leg and then he'd put it on his neck and he'd carry it in the nap of his neck, carry the sheep back to the fold. And he'd say, you ain't going anywhere. You stubborn, rebellious, you know, you snap. You're not going anywhere. That's what the shepherd would do. Break the sheep's leg. So God knows what he's doing in our lives. And there might be times when you're like, what is going on? What's happening? And you're in the midst of something that is just, you know, very difficult, very trying. And I'm telling you that God's trying to break you so that you'll stop running from him and you'll run to him and you'll align yourself with his purpose. And so many people, I've seen it, been in pastor for 30 years now. So many people, what happens is when the heat turns up a bit, when things start to be exposed in their lives, when their stubbornness and their rebellion and their self-will starts to get challenged, then what happens is they run off and they go somewhere else. And they don't commit themselves. But it says in Psalm 92, those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish. You can't flourish if you don't have deep roots. You can't flourish if you're not planted. And I know there are churches that are very unhealthy and toxic. I'm not talking about those kind of churches, all right? I'm not talking being part of a cult or being part of something where people abuse you or control you or manipulate you. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying a place where people love God and the leaders have hearts after God. And you, you make that commitment and you plug in 
And then you say, I ain't going anywhere. I'm sticking around. I'm in this for the long haul. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to literally do whatever it takes to stay grounded, to stay rooted, because I know that it's in this place that God's going to change my life. And I need to walk in covenant, and I need to walk in community with others who have the same heart and the same passion for God. And I'm telling you, that God is doing something. He's gathering the elect. He's gathering a remnant in these days. And he's bringing people together who understand kingdom, that understand covenant and community, who understand the fullness of who he is. And one of the things that happens is when we're in the process of learning things and really trying to walk in the fullness of the revelation that God's giving to us, some people go so far and then they kind of say, well, I like this stuff. I like the signs and wonders thing. That's really cool. Oh, you know, I'm in for the signs and wonders thing. I like that. But then, oh, discipleship? Oh, submit? Oh, oh, um, love one another? You mean wash one another's feet? And, and you know, and really like just serve and, and, and give myself to God and, and pour out my life to help others? You know what? I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want. But it's a way of the New Testament. You have to be completely blind to not see it if you've read the scripture. And trust me, there are people who try to justify what they're doing who have read it in the scripture, but they're just hardening their hearts because they don't want it. They want to do things their way. And in these days in which we live, we've got to be a people that recognize our kingdom identity, our kingdom purpose. There is a place where God is saying, I have restored through my son Jesus oneness and intimacy with the Father. And out of that, the glory is restored. And out of that glory is an authority. So if you think about it, you know, even as the word was said today, there's, it's kind of, that's really cool. Like a child, like an adult, you know, just kind of opens the door a little bit and takes a look. Who's this? But a child just, you know, pulls the door open. And, and he's saying that's the way we're supposed to be. And as we recognize that, we just say, okay, God, I'm opening the door of my life fully to you. Whatever you want to do, I will receive that. I want to do that. I want to give you unrestricted access to my life. And what happens at that point is we experience all that God has made available at the cross. That's why Peter was so powerfully anointed. was because he didn't hold back anything from God. He gave himself completely to God. And the enemy hates that type of power and presence enemy absolutely hates it and I believe we're living in a time when God is restoring people back to himself a remnant that will seek his face a remnant that will lay down everything for him a remnant that will do his kingdom business just coming back literally yesterday from 11 days 10 days in the Philippines seeing all the miracles that we saw seeing hundreds of people come to Christ, you know, all the things that we saw. But the thing that touched me the most was just one night at the end when we were in a small, um, smaller area, rural area, we went to preach the gospel. And there was a lady there who got saved that night. And she looked at us and she said, thank you for coming here and telling us about Jesus. I was like, oh. So we said, no, no, say that again. <laughs> And we videotaped that. And she was like so sincere. Thank you for coming to tell us about Jesus. Yeah. We did this mass crusade, thousands of people. And then we go into a home a few days after where they're starting a church. And there's maybe 35 people or so in there. Give an invitation, an altar call. Who here wants to accept Jesus? 20 hands go up. Every one of those 20 people had never accepted Jesus before. We didn't know that was, the, that was the first service of the new church plant. And we're hoping to go back and do a massive crusade there. 
and take the gospel and love the people and serve them. And there's so much that we can do when we get it right because we're pouring out. And as we pour out, he pours back into us. That's the key, isn't it? Right? That law of reciprocity. That's the way God does it. So tonight, we're going to pray. And we're going to pray and just ask the Holy Spirit to just ruin us from selfish living. To ruin us from mediocrity and just being focused on our own problems all the time. I know you have problems. I have problems too. I have challenges too. If I told you some of my challenges, some of the things that I've been through in my family, I don't think there's too many people that have experienced what I've gone through, just to be honest. Maybe one day I'll share that. And some people say, why aren't you bitter? Why aren't you angry? I am. I'm angry at the devil. It wasn't God. It was the devil. And it's time that we get angry with the devil. And it's time that we even get angry with ourselves at times. And we just say, you know what? Enough is enough. I got to stop this. I got I to gotta wake up. I got to begin to give myself completely to Jesus. And as you do, you'll never regret that decision. It is a daily decision. Right? It's not just one time. It is a daily decision. But I'm telling you, you'll find your life. You'll find your purpose for living when you lay it all down. Can we stand together, please? We're going to just pray. Come on, just open your heart right now to the Holy Spirit. Switch to Spectrum Mobile and get unlimited data for only $29.99 per month each when you get two or more lines. You could save hundreds on your mobile bill. Plus, there are no added taxes, hidden fees, and no contracts. Click to try the Spectrum Mobile Savings Calculator, and in three easy steps, you'll see how much you could save. Visit SpectrumMobile.com save. Offer valid for new customers on two or more unlimited lines. Spectrum Internet required. Restrictions apply. Visit SpectrumMobile.com for details.